0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Chris Curtis, a cancer advocate and founder of the UK-based Swallows Head and Neck Cancer Support Group and charity. In this episode, we find out about Chris's early life and his love of sport, football, food, cooking, hospitality and marketing. Chris offers insights into his more recent life and his diagnosis and treatment of stage four throat cancer. We chat about the mental, physical and psychological impact on Chris's everyday life and how in the months following his treatment, he felt the need for comfort, support and hope from someone who had gone through a similar experience we learn how Chris took a moment to reflect and engage with his previous self, someone who was skilled in management, advertising, sales, marketing and promotion, to turn his dream into a reality. Beginning with a marketing plan and laminated posters, Chris soon found support from willing and compassionate healthcare workers to expand and grow The Swallows Group and to offer support and hope to other head and neck cancer patients. Chris reflects on the fundamental purpose of the group, a friendly and safe social space with open conversations between patients, caregivers, family and friends. We chat about running a successful group, both face-to-face and online, training of support group leaders and using community education strategies to address the various social inequalities which exist around public health and head and neck cancer. Chris brings an optimistic and positive voice in helping make a difference to thousands of cancer patients around the world. Here's my conversation with Chris Curtis. So, hello, Chris. Nice to see you again.
1: And yourself, Mark. Lovely to see you.
0: So, I want to find out more. We're we're just meeting uh, one-on-one, so I don't know much about you and your history. So I'd like to find out... um, a little bit more about you where what what are you interested in where did you come from where did you grow up that kind of
1: thing so my realistically I was born in Tripoli North Africa um 1958 which makes me only 21 if you do very good at maths um but I was uh yeah my dad was out there in the RAF and I was born in Tripoli North Africa and um and then we came back to the UK and I virtually lived in most cities around the UK because again, my dad was touring around in the raft and I went to normal school. I wasn't the brightest guy in, in the bunch, um, never been very, very clever. I had a lot of problems with uh, mumps and illnesses and tonsillitis and all the other stuff as a, as a kid and... You know, looking back now, that could be the reasons why I had the problem with the cancer in my later life. But you know, the, as a kid, nothing's ever going to happen to you, so you just get on with it. Um, but I wasn't the brightest lad in the in the bunch. I loved my sport. I was into football, um, very much so into football. I was pretty good at football. I realised I was good at football, so that's as a kid I was going to play professional football and. I was going to be a rich man and I was going to have all these women chasing me and everything you see around professional football and I'd done all right at it. you know I got signed up in my teenagers teenagers for a local club um, Coventry City, which is a at the time was a first division club as a goalkeeper. I got to play for them on the bench once that was all and um, at the time as a kid, I had West Ham, which was, again, a bigger club in, in the city of London, coming for me. But I told my dad that they weren't big enough and I wanted a bigger club. And after that, no club ever come in for me. And obviously, I didn't become a professional footballer. And I went on a different road. And I think looking back, we all have those... Parts in the road where if you go one way, something's going to happen. If you go the other way, something else is going to happen. And I think that was my why in the road, that I said no to West Ham, which meant I wasn't a professional footballer, and I was going to have to find something else to do. So that's where I was early doors as a as a teenager. Football was my life, um, but it ended up not being my life. So that was mm-hmm. me as a as a teenager.
0: And then, what did you end up doing? What was the um, what was that pathway in the why?
1: Well, my dad was old fashioned. My mum was old fashioned. Um, if I wanted money, I had to earn it from a young age. Um, if I wanted some pocket money, I had to wash his car and clean his car and do it. It was never handed to me because they had to work damn hard for their money. Um, if I, so I decided to go into catering. I thought. You know, I'm not a clever guy, so I'm never going to be a genius or a professor or a teacher. So um, my mum taught me how to cook from an early age so that I could always cook if she wasn't there. So I just went into college and done cooking. And I ended up in London being um, a commie chef, which is the bottom of the run, washing pans and doing all the stuff that you don't really want to do. And within three years, I took over that restaurant as general manager. So wow. I just just suddenly decided that this was for me and that's what I was going to do. And um, because my dad and my mum was very into making sure you work, um, that was just me and I just I just absolutely loved it. And I think when you love something, you put everything in it. And I ended up being general manager of a restaurant in, in London. And, uh, you know, all right, it wasn't the best paid job, hospitality isn't, but it give me a lot. If I used to have to give my mum and dad money to for board and keep. And if I wanted to borrow it back, my mum used to give him every penny I wanted, but then charge me interest to teach me about what happens in the real world. So, you know, I used to give her, I think at the time 30 pounds a week. And if I borrowed it back, then I had to give her interest on that money. Um, but it was just again to teach me a lesson and I think there were good lessons that you know that got me right for life so I was going down that that road and as a single man it was a great life um you know in hospitality it was a phenomenal life in the central London you know it was twenty four seven life it was just incredible clubs bars restaurants what sort of, and as what
0: it, era what era would it have been
1: uh eighties. Oh, yeah. Which again was a which was a good era um in the eighties. So yeah, I had a I had a good life in and going down very, very well. And until I suddenly started realising there were girls out there and they wanted it a little bit more serious. And then I met someone, got married, and guess what? You know, split shifts and working all the hours and going out to clubs afterwards really wasn't what she wanted. So had to go I just decided to pack it up one day and it was either get divorced or pack up the job so at the time I decided to pack up the job and look for something else and for my sins I went into selling I've been always been good at talking to people and getting on with people and using the charm of you know what I've been taught by my dad manners and everything else and So, yeah, I went into selling.
0: You're actively demonstrating some of those skills right now, I believe. (laughs) So what were you selling?
1: uh, At the time, I was just selling local advertising. It was just literally, I was so pleased that I got a job. It gave me a good living. Um, I had to work hard. I had to get the sales and commissions to earn. But then once I started earning the money that I knew that I could earn, Then I realized this is the job for me. And I decided to take it on as a profession rather than just as a salesman. So I tried to speak to as many top salespeople in the industry as I could in advertising. I actually took four weeks off to go and work with the top man in the company who was earning the most money so that I could see what he was doing. And I remember promising him within 12 months, I would knock him off the top of the off the list. <laughs> no. And it was almost 12 months to the date that I actually beat him and I was number one in the company. Um, and the, th- the thing he told me was that don't worry about the money. If you're number one, you will earn the money because you're number one. So don't worry about money. Just worry about where you are in a company when you're doing sales. And if you're number one in that company, trust me, money follows you. And that was the best advice. And he also said, the phone doesn't ring. You have to make it ring. So every time you get a customer, make sure you get five referrals. And in the end, I used to sell my referrals because I had so many of them to my other colleagues and earn a commission on their commission. So, yeah, I was loving it. And selling was what I wanted to do. And, and that's and marketing. And that's the road I went.
0: Did you miss the um, food aspect of your previous role, you know? Because well, I was going to ask you well, what sort of food did you enjoy cooking, and you know, before you hit the uh, heights of management? Yeah,
1: well, um, the, the food I used to cook was quality French food. Um, and, you know, before my cancer, I got to 22 Stone, and you don't get to 22 Stone without enjoying food. So food has always been my my nemesis, I think. You know, um, I love food. I always have loved food. I love creating food and making it look good on the plate, even to this day. Um, I think if it looks good, it tastes good. So even a spaghetti bolognese, I'll try and make it look a little bit different than just the spaghetti bolognese in, in a bowl. So um, those good things have stuck with me. And, you know, it's... Um, it's been fun getting to the stage where, you know, I got my cancer. So um, it's been a good life, put it that way. And I put it all down to my mum and dad giving me those hard lessons as a as a teenager, you know, knowing that if you want to buy something, make sure you got the money to buy it. Don't get it on credit, because if you get it on credit, you're going to have to pay for it. Like I used to have to pay my mum back interest yeah. and work. If you work, everything will follow you. I think those lessons were good lessons. And my dad used to say, manners cost you nothing, son, but it'll get you a long way in life. And I think, you know, those old-fashioned ideals have, have got me to where I am now.
0: Mm. And so with your um, with your selling and your advertising, what, what happened after that? Like, get us up to speed with where we are currently in our conversation, just to kind of fill in yeah. that time.
1: Yeah, so I was in marketing. Um, I got into marketing from a sales job and I wanted to really understand the ins and outs of selling and and why I was being so successful. So it went down the road of marketing and marketing is a different skill set to selling, but they cross over. And I went into marketing and again, once I go into something, I want to be the best I can in that area. And I went into marketing as a trainee, ended up having my own business, And ended up having some very high net worth clients doing very, very well at marketing their products. If they had a product, then I would take it to market for them. And I would take a percentage off their bottom line. No fees, no promises. But if I was successful and they earned more money out of it, then I earned more money out of it. So it was a no risk for them. So I got a lot of high net worth clients. And I was doing very well. And my business was doing very well. And then on Friday the 13th at 11.30 in the morning, I went to the local hospital with a lump on my throat to be told that I'd got throat cancer. And and it was stage four throat cancer. Three tumours, one at the base of the tongue and one each side of the neck. So three tumours in total, stage four. And the world just fell on its backside because... that was the last thing I expected them to say that I've got a sore throat or got swollen glands or something like that not that you've got stage four cancer because I've never smoked I've never drank um for a lot of years and I'm pretty healthy even though I was 22 stone I was still refereeing at a high level I was still doing a lot of sports and I was enjoying life so why me for cancer and the world just dropped out of it. It was unbelievable. The worst moment of my life.
0: And how old were you at the time?
1: Fifty-two.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then so what?
1: 50. Yeah. What was
0: like? I can well imagine. However, what what was it like? Just that kind of. You know. Did did you quit work or how, what? What what happened in the immediate kind of few months or after that well
1: we're lucky here in the uk that if um i once you get diagnosed within two weeks you have to be in your treatment pathway um or you have to be discharged to say you're not gonna you're not the got cancer so go on your way and good luck to you so because I mine was stage four literally the following week I was having my mask fitted. I was having my treatment plan laid out in front of me. And my, I just handed my life over to my consultant and I had no control of what was going to happen next. All my life, I've had a control of what I was going to do, like I've explained. If I wanted to be the best, I'd be the best. If I wanted to do something, I would do it. Suddenly, I'd handed my life over to a consultant and I had no control anymore. And that was the scariest moment of my life.
0: So how, um, I guess, could you, could you, this is for the audience, what is stage four, cancer? How does that, you know, what are the numbering systems? What does it mean? Yeah.
1: so stage one is the one that you want to be diagnosed at because more people survive, one and two. Three, it gets a little bit harder to survive. And stage four normally is the one that you are not going to survive. Um, and there is no stage five you are on the pathway to, to no return. But, but, you know, once I understood what was happening to me and I got a grips with what was doing, I had to take control. And once I started to take control, then the rest is history. So my diagnosis, like I say, was stage four cancer. My treatment pathway was um, a feeding peg or a feeding tube fitted so that I was being fed through my stomach from day one. Um, I had radiotherapy, so I had six weeks of radiotherapy, which I had every day apart from Saturday and Sunday. They gave you Saturday and Sunday off, but every day I went to the radiotherapy and had 40 minutes of radiotherapy on all sides of my neck, including the back, the front, the side, and through the top of the head and through the bottom. I had chemo once a week. Um, And once I finished that, I had two neck dissections and a neck dissection is where they open you from the top of the ear to your shoulder, like a a cross and then across your shoulder. They open all that side of your face up and your neck up and they cut the tumors out. And I had that both sides of my neck. I didn't eat or drink for three and a half years. um, So nothing passed my mouth for three and a half years because of the treatment pathway and the, the, the hardness of it. I tried to commit suicide twice. I was in a really bad place. Um, and yeah, the treatment pathway was brutal. It had to be brutal to try and save my life. They told me right at the beginning, if the treatment didn't work, the only thing that was going to be open to me was a full facial split where they split you down the middle of your face, open the face up, put your tongue out and cut everything out and then put you back together again. So thank God, that didn't happen um but dealing with all that mentally and physically and psychologically was horrendous um and yeah that was my treatment pathway it's i don't want to make it sound just as if it was just like tomorrow but it was it was brutal but i survived and i'm a survivor so and i've been a survivor all my life so this was not going to beat me
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So I have kept up and I've been comparing my own um my own story in the background, but I want to know when did you dream up the Swallows Group?
1: So it came in the I would say the st- I don't know, the six months post-treatment, I was really struggling to go out. I wanted to speak to someone that had been there and wore the T-shirt, and I hadn't got a clue where to go for that. The health officials were fantastic, but they were really wasn't giving me what I needed to understand. And I also needed hope, and there was no one to give me that hope. I needed hope of looking at someone like you, Mark, and saying, well, you've been there, you wore that T-shirt, and I'm going to get there because that's the sort of person I am. I want to get to where that person is. And like my sales days, I wanted to be number one in the company. I wanted to get to that. And there wasn't anybody. So I just decided to start talking to my old self, which is, this sounds absolutely crazy. And every time I explain this story, it sounds even crazier. But I had I was into marketing in a big way, like I've said, so I used to sit on the settee and I would talk to my previous Chris and I'd say, I've got an idea. I want to start doing support for other patients and I want to give other patients hope. How do I do that? And then this other Chris, who used to be me, started helping me put together a marketing plan. And between the two of us, and that's the bit that sounds stupid as if I've gone crazy, but there was two of us in this and that was me and this other Chris started to put together an idea that I needed to offer support to other patients and let me be that hope and that piece of light at the end of a tunnel. So, But I can't do that without looking at a marketing plan. So I had to come up with a dream, and my dream was within 10 years to be the number one support group in the world offering support at the point someone wants it, when they want it, how they wanted it. That was my mission statement to get me going. And that's the plan I built was – and then I had to come up with a name because all marketing is based – Coca-Cola has a brand and it has a name. So I knew I had to create something. So we all struggle to swallow. So that was an easy one. I called it the swallows because it's easy. We all struggle to swallow. Um, So, But swallows are also – Birds of hope and birds of wisdom, and they're birds of flight. So, again, I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, we can't swallow, but what I'm looking to do is give someone that hope and that flight and that. So, I started putting it all together. I looked in the world to find whether breast cancer was pink, bowel cancer was black, but head and neck cancer had no color. So, I had a bird outside in my garden that was going rusty and it looked burgundy. So I decided to turn it burgundy and I wanted to have burgundy as head and neck and I wanted the swallows to be a leader. And that's how I drenched up the swallows. And we I had a fundraising event. You can't do anything without money, unfortunately, in this world. As much as people are really generous, you can't do it without money. So I put on a fundraiser. And at that fundraiser, we raised something like £18,000. And that gave me the capital to then start buying things to get things moving. And the other thing I decided on was going back to my food days. If food looks good, it tastes good. So whatever I produced had to look good so that when someone read it or saw it, they wanted to engage. So instead of having a photocopy of a photocopy, (laughs) and a horrible poster curling at the end in a hospital. I wanted it to look attractive. So I went to the extreme of having something designed and created that looked very, very attractive. So once I got all that together, then I had to distribute it. So I started working with the hospitals. And before I knew it, the dream was reality and moving at a pace that was just phenomenally fast. But again... That's me as a person. That's what I wanted. And that got me out of my depression because I didn't have time. It got me to have a conversation with Sharon when she used to come in from work, whereas I wasn't having those conversations anymore. And all of a sudden, I had a purpose in life. And because I had that purpose, which was to help somebody, and I always remember the first patient I helped, he actually rang me up and said, without you, Chris, I wouldn't have got through it. And that's all I needed. Just that few words, and that was the hope within what I was trying to generate and create. And and now, what, now 11 years on, we're doing very, very well and very, very busy across the globe.
0: And what, what sort of, like you said about you bought, you spent money on things, um, like what what things – Are you talking about like uh, room bookings or photocopying or, you know, what what kind of, what are the line items, I guess?
1: So the, the items, yeah, the biggest purchase was posters, but not only just a normal poster. I went to the hospital and asked them why. what would stop me putting a poster up in a hospital, and they talked about infection control. So I asked them to give me a list of things that I had to do with my poster to be able to be able to have the permission to put it on the wall. And once I'd got all their ticks, which was laminating the poster, but actually having it built within the poster, that it was washable, that it, that it couldn't transfer disease, once I got all that ticked, I went back to them and said, right, this is the poster, and it's got yeses on all the ticks where can i put them up in the hospital and they had no choice but to let me put them up in the hospital so posters was the most expensive bit to start with then we had to do a leaflet and again the leaflet again had to be infection control and making sure that it looked good and that could be put into a man's pocket so it didn't i didn't want it too big i didn't want it too small but it had to be like a little trifold so it could go in your top pocket or in your inside pocket. So i done a lot of research on that. Um, So again, the leaflets and the the original print run was 10,000 that I had printed. I knew that it was 12,000 diagnosed in the UK every year. So I went for a 10,000 print run so that everybody could have my leaflet and posters from day one. And, and then I started talking to the hospitals and, traveling out to the hospital. So the biggest cost was the poster and the leaflets to get them to the stage where the hospitals were happy to give them out to every newly diagnosed patient and put the posters up on the wall. And once I'd done that, and then we started talking about monthly meetings. So we'd done a monthly meeting, which then is room hire, teas and coffees, um, making sure the room looks good and nice, comfortable and warm. And we started our regular monthly meetings. And from the first day that I started it, 10 years ago, we have never missed a monthly meeting in 10 years um, in Blackpool. And we now run 22 of those meetings across the UK, five in Spain, two in America, um, and one in Saudi Arabia. And we never miss a monthly meeting. So tomorrow night, which is Wednesday, we will be having our meeting, a global meeting, with about 120 people on the meeting from all around the world, as well as our face-to-face meetings, all on the same day. And so most of the cost was for that, to be fair, Mark. Um, I didn't do it to earn me money, because that's not why I'd done it. So it wasn't the case of me taking wages out of it. That's not what I'd done it for.
0: So how did all that happen, though? there's a kind of... From, from a humble a laminated poster in a hospital, and then like just fill in some of those gaps for us over over those ten years. What what were some of the progressions? How did it expand out? Like, is it word of mouth or the hospital healthcare workers, um, patient participants, members?
1: Well, don't forget my background is marketing. So I know how to take a product to market. That's how I used to earn my living and made a lot of money out of it. So I knew with my old Chris how to take this to market. And the best people I went to was the healthcare professional that is talking to someone newly diagnosed. If I could offer them a service that is going to take some of that worry from them and their patient, why wouldn't they refer them to me? So I went to virtually every hospital in the UK and spoke to all the health professionals and got my posters on the wall, my leaflets being handed out, built that network of health professionals very, very quickly. It had never been done like this before. So they were happy to see me. They were willing to see me. And so it it, it went very quickly. Um, it was like a dominoes. You knock one down and they all tumble. It was very much like that. Once I got the first one and the second one, they then started recommending me to their colleagues in another hospital. And all of a sudden, people were ringing me saying, we want your service, Chris. I didn't have to ring them. Mm. So
0: it started out by the sounds of it like a face-to-face in a meeting room in a hospital. But then how? I'm just interested in that transition to maybe electronic or other, other other approaches, you know, different ways for people to get together these days?
1: Yeah. So, up till COVID, face to face was the thing to do. If you talk to a 94 year old to say, will you come online and go on a Zoom? In fact, if you had talked to me about a Zoom, I'd have thought you were talking about me going up into space. But COVID bought IT and the internet. And this way of talking forward 10 years, very quickly, because people were being diagnosed over line. People were having their consultants dialing in. So, you know, COVID had a lot of bad things, but it also had a lot of good things bringing this technology forward. But once we come out of COVID, I realized that we've been so successful through COVID helping patients online. I didn't want to stop that. So, yes, some people like face-to-face because they like that way of communicating. Some people like just to go online and they'll be at their own home and will just come online and meet people. Some people like one-to-ones. Some people like to meet in a cafe. So we have all them services now for our patients. And we also have our mobile app now, which is unique to head and neck cancer, where it has a community on it. So now, I think our youngest... User of our mobile app is about 18 who's got head and neck cancer, and I think our oldest is 96. So, you know, technology now is the way forward. Um, I'm a great believer in our next patients are born with mobile phones in their hands. So unless we get techie and start delivering services to those when they're going to need it, then we're doing a disjustice to those people that are walking this earth at the moment not knowing they're going to need a cancer support service so we need to step up to that mark and that's what we're trying to do now but generally i believe covid has helped us realize that this has to be done because people are expecting it now so that's how we move forward with the tech- technology
0: You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. With all this experience and um, territory of cancer support groups, you'd already mentioned hope, but what are, what happens in the meeting and then what do people get out of it? And yeah, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: So yeah, Mark, i support group meetings um, since we stepped them up. I The first one I ever went to was like an AA meeting. And you had to stand there and say, I'm Chris, I've got cancer. And and then it went to the next one, I'm John and I've got cancer. Then it went to my wife, I'm Sharon and I'm okay. And it went around the table. And by the time we ran around, it was all over. And I thought, what am I doing this for? This is not what I want. <laughs> so again, when I developed a support group, What I wanted was that there was no silly question. It was a friendly place to be. It was a safe place to be. And if you wanted to just go there and say absolutely nothing, but just sit and listen, you can go there and sit there and just say absolutely nothing and listen. So it's a friendly place to be, but you'll always find that someone has got a problem like dry mouth or they've got mucositis or they've got one of the many side effects of 220 side effects we have with head and neck cancer. So someone will start the conversation and all they wanna know is, I've got dry mouth, what's someone else doing to get rid of it? And then someone will say, well, I try this. And the next one will say, oh, well, I try this. And before you know it, everyone's having a conversation to solve a problem. None of them have got the right answer because we're all different, but they're all talking. So it's about talking, it's about talking in a friendly place. So the patients and caregivers go to our support groups together. But halfway through the the night, they separate. So caregivers go into one room, patients stay in another room. Because our caregivers have the same problems, but they see in a different way. So they need a safe space to be. So we separate them. And we found that when we separate our groups, then the dynamics start to change because neither party protect each other. What they do then is open up even more. And you'll also always – you'll think you're the worst-off person there with your treatment and what's happening to you. You'll always find someone that is worse off than you. And all of a sudden, you think, God, I'm lucky. But what I can do now is I can help that person. So it's about – it's just about having that open conversation. When we start our meetings, sometimes it's very hard to get everyone talking but because of the way we train our leads and the way we move the, the meeting around, by the end of it, you can't shut them up. They, you literally have to kick them out and put them in the bar to continue talking because otherwise you'd never get home. Um, but it is it is a place that people can literally just sit and talk or do nothing. And everyone understands what you're going through. So, you know, you, you can... You, we have a lady that... Very rarely speaks, and, is, and when she does speak, she's hard to understand. But no one, everyone gives her time to talk. They're not, they're not hard on her. They, they just sit there and listen to her, and she talks. But it took her eighteen months of meetings to just say hello to the group. Of being in that meeting and saying nothing for eighteen months. Now she is a regular talker in those meetings. That's what the meetings are at, Mark. It's. There's no set agenda. We tend to have a guest speaker if we can in each of the meetings. Um, But we invite our health professionals into the meeting. It's not a right for them to be there. We would prefer them not to be in the meeting because the dynamics change if they're in the meeting. So we prefer to have it just with patients and caregivers and family and friends. We have friends of the cancer patient come and the cancer patient doesn't come. But the friend wants to know more. We have a young 15-year-old boy that goes to one of our meetings because his dad has cancer. His mum and dad sit outside the meeting. They don't need it. But he wanted to understand that other men survived this cancer. Now he's one of the biggest people within our group. He's 15. But what we found when we talked to him was mum and dad couldn't afford a mobile phone. So, of course, it went. You take a mobile phone off a 15 year old boy, you might as well cut his right arm off. So, as a charity, we bought him a mobile phone and put credit on his phone. And all of a sudden, he's got his social life back and he's starting to accept it. And now he's also can see other men surviving the cancer. So, he knows his dad can survive the cancer. So, everybody gets out what they want to get out of the meeting. Um, but we do train our leads we have a training manual we train our leads there's a fine line bef- of giving support or giving medical advice we never give medical advice and I think any support group that goes down that road are leaving themselves wide open for someone to to, to complain about them so we have a fine line of what we do we act as that bridge between the patient and the and the health professional so if there's a problem we can act as that bridge and that's what we tend to do
0: yeah i'm i'm interested cuz my background is in training what sort of um what sort of stuff do you cover in the training
1: um we cover how to open a group up cuz don't forget some of these leads could have been a builder last week never done anything like this suddenly been given the wonderful thing of cancer now want to give something back and become a lead. They've never run groups. They've never chaired a meeting. They were a builder or they were a joiner or whatever. Um, Very rarely do we get someone that is is used to doing that sort of thing. So we train them how to open groups up. And the best way of saying, is anyone dealing with any side effects at the moment? That instantly opens a group up because someone in that group will have a side effect. So we teach them how to do that in the manual. We teach them where that fine line is of giving hope and support or becoming a medical person. And we train them on that side of it. We train them that, you know, even if you've only got one person in the room, that's a success. You don't have to have big numbers because that one person needs that support. Our support group meetings normally start around 6.30 in the evening and finish around 9 p.m., and even if you've got no one in the room, you don't leave there till 9pm because somebody might be wandering around outside building enough courage to walk in. And if they walk in at quarter to nine and you're not there, they'll never come back. So we just give them, and we also give them we give them that support when they're having problems. We give them that support if they've got questions. So our training manual is all about how to run a, an actual successful group and doing the things that we've just mentioned. One of the biggest projects we're on at the moment is the inequalities in head and neck cancer. So if you go around majority of the waiting rooms globally, um, what you'll find is, is, is that the waiting rooms will be white British. You'll very rarely find um, a black person, an Asian person in those waiting rooms. It's normally 99% will be white British. So what we're trying to do is, is look at why that is, and one of the reasons is, is that the inequalities in head and neck is around education, language barriers, religion, um, and we've got to crack those nuts and try and get people diagnosed early in those, in those communities and get them into hospital to save lives. So we're doing a big project on the inequalities in head and neck cancer. And so what we decided to do, instead of going for the elders in the mosques and in the churches in the religion area, which everyone's done for years gone by, go to the elders and they'll teach the young ones. Unfortunately, once you become an elder, you're already set in that way. So it's very hard to change. So what I've looked at is, Looking at the 18 to 23 year olds, there are next cancer people coming through whether they like it or not, that age group is our next set of cancer patients in head and neck. So if we can educate those people around the cancer, the sign of the signs to look for, don't chew tobacco, don't eat pan and all the other issues that go on try and break down the religious side of cancer within those communities. Because even now, if you get cancer in one of those religions, it's a dirty word, and you're almost set back to India to die in India. Um, And we have had cases of that even in 2023. So if we can break those down with that community of young people, they can become our advocates into the elders, and they can then talk to their elders But even if they don't convince those elders, sooner or later, they're going to be the elders, and you would hope by the time they get to be an elder, then they're then going to have that education to change. So we've set a target of 2028 to have everyone diagnosed at stage one or stage two in head and neck cancer in those communities, because we're dealing with the young people that in 2028 are going to be our cancer patients. And even if we can't change the elders, if they then start getting diagnosed early enough because they've had this education and they've, they're aware of it, we've translated all our material into different languages, then if we save one life, it's been worth it. But I think we're going to have a massive, big impact on the inequalities of head and neck cancer globally if we tr- if we educate that age group. Um, and You may have seen the film that we put together, that the young people held us together on inequalities. As an older person, you can cringe a bit. But actually, when you know that they've created that around head and neck, it's actually a very, very powerful film with that age group. And it's already getting the impact that we need, that the community is coming to us now asking for the information to be translated to put up in the mosques. And to put around the mosque and do the education in the schools. So, in six months of doing the project, we're starting to feel that, that nice vibe back to us. When I was diagnosed, I thought I was going to die and my life had ended. Looking back now, I think that day I won the lottery because when, I win, when you win the lottery, you normally, it changes your life because you get a lot of money. This has never been about money to me. This is about me getting on with my life. And I won the lottery the day I got given cancer on Friday the 13th in 2011. That was the day I won the lottery. Absolutely won the lottery without a of that. Because today, helping over 12,500 patients globally and caregivers and all the hospitals, every time I help someone, that is like someone putting money in my bank because I know I make a difference. And I think anyone that is in this arena of support groups or support leads, then you can get so much more out of it than you even realize yourself at the beginning. And, you know, we we as a charity now, as I say, I just, I absolutely love the work I do. I love talking to you, Mark. I love talking to people all around the world because we can all make a difference. Patients' voice can change tomorrow's patient's journey. We can't change our journey. It's impossible. We can't change someone that's going through it today. But if we all get together and we all talk and we all have the same message, tomorrow's patient will have a better journey than us. And quality of life, should be at the forefront of all change. Survivorship is not worth surviving if we haven't got quality of life. And the only people that can change quality of life with drug companies and hospitals is us, the survivors of today. And we get together and tomorrow's patient will have a better run within their journey and have better outcomes and better quality of life. And then our job is done. And I would love one day to have to close my charity because nobody needs me. And I'd love every support group to have to close because it's not needed anymore. That would be my lovely ambition before someone takes me away from this planet. But, you know, we've got a lot of work to do, but we can only do it by communicating like we are now. So, anyone that's listening to this podcast, even if you've not got head and neck cancer, Find the local head and neck cancer group or charity and give them time. It's not always about money. Give them time. Give them your skill sets. If you're a solicitor, give them your solicitors. Give them your, your, your services for free. They need that service. If you're a builder, help them. You know, everyone can make a difference because one day you could be on this journey. And the way head and neck cancer is now becoming, it's now the fourth biggest cancer in the world there are more men on this journey than women you need to realize this could be biting you in the rear end tomorrow so don't just ignore it look for the signs if you don't know the signs you know get Mark to tell you the signs on another podcast but look for those signs if you see the signs get to your medical person and insist on getting examined it will save your life and we need to do that and drive it worldwide So tomorrow's patient will have a better journey, Mark, if we all come together around the world.
0: In this episode, I chatted with Chris Curtis. You can find more information about this episode in the show notes, including a link to the Swallows Head and Neck Cancer Support Group website, featuring patient and carer stories and links to additional resources. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville.